0: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
1: Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia?
0: Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back
1: on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt
0: front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under.
1: I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. to sit down. They're sticking your lies. You're a classic space invader. A social
0: climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... <laughs>
1: Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. G'day, Mark Kenny here with another Democracy Sausage, uh, which of course comes to you from the Australian National University, specifically the Australian Studies Institute, the School of Politics and International Relations, and the excellent Crawford School of Public Policy. This week we thought we might get a little bit out of the, uh, sort of step away from the, the uh, daily sushi train of events and look at some of the bigger, deeper trends, things that are shaping our, our politics and our society. With me today, as usual, is Dr. Maria Taflaga, political scientist. Welcome, Maria.
0: Hello, Mark. Hello everyone.
1: And also uh, joining us uh, this time from the University of Western Sydney, Sukmani Karana. Uh, she's a VC.'s senior fellow at the Young and Resilient Research Center at the Western Sydney University. Welcome, Sukmani.:
2: Thank you, Mark. Very happy to be here.
1: And Fan Young. Fan Young is a PhD candidate at Deakin University where she researches WeChat during elections and migrant migrant voices. She's also an analyst at Freedom House. Welcome Fan.
3: Thanks Mark. Thanks for having me here.
1: It's a great pleasure to have you all, and it's appropriate that we should have names such as yours, including Maria's, uh, which are all names that uh, perhaps don't fit into, unlike mine, that don't fit into that sort of Anglo-Celtic-Irish kind of standard phenotype that we've uh, seen dominating power and business and everything else in Australian society because everything's changing and in fact um we we always talk about ourselves as a multicultural nation Malcolm Turnbull for example used to say Australia is the most successful multicultural nation in the world and in I guess in some ways that might be um that might be right in other ways I think uh, it, it it's open to challenge it's not a sort of a a um a uniform picture across all indices. but Sukmani, perhaps I'll start with you. We just had a census release. What did we learn about uh, about um the makeup of Australian society now from that census?
2: Um, so I think everyone's been a little bit surprised by what they've learned from the census. Of course we knew, uh, from the 2016 census, that you know the makeup of the Australian population is changing, and what I mean by that is that, as you just said, that we have more people from non-Anglo-Celtic backgrounds in Australia now. But what we didn't expect was that almost half of the Australian population now has uh, one parent or both parents born overseas. Um, in addition to that, countries like India and China are now in the top three after after England in terms of people from those countries of origins calling Australia home. Uh, we've also had big increases from countries like Nepal, um, from countries like Vietnam, and uh, refugee populations increasing in certain parts of Sydney and Melbourne. Um, so I think the reason people have been surprised is because when you look at our institutions, when you look at you know who's in the decision-making roles in institutions like Uh, politics, in the media, in corporate Australia, you don't see that demographic makeup reflected um, in in those places which are kind of symbolic of what Australian democracy is or what Australia as a nation is. Um, So I think we have a lot to learn from the census and what it means not just for our future and our planning needs and what our ancestries will look like. In uh, decades to come, but also how we need to make some concerted efforts to uh, change the makeup of our institutions.
1: Yes, I want to come back to that uh, question about the institutions in a moment, but just uh, if if I could get you to expand for a moment on a, a point you made right at the end there about ancestries, the the, the changing nature of the backgrounds, I suppose of uh, of the people in Australia. Can you just explain that point a bit further?
2: So um, in this particular census, our ancestries having the top five ancestry is the same as the 2016 census, which from memory is, I think, English, Irish, Scottish, uh, Chinese. But um, given that the countries of origin have shifted significantly, the countries of origin is different from ancestry. The countries of origin is when, you know, you have – uh, when you have first and second generation migrants, whereas if you are talking about ancestry, your ancestors have been in Australia longer, um, and therefore, you know, the, the data looks different.
1: I see, but right. given
2: that the countries of origin um, have shifted significantly, um, y- what it also means is that, say, in a generation or so, or in about half a generation, the ancestry will also begin to change. And that is significant because it means that who we think of as Australian settlers or people who think of themselves as Australian, which in the minds of most people used to be Anglo-Celtic, is becoming slightly more, um, you know, Southern European um, because of the population, uh, the migration populations that we had post World, the Second World War. Um, you know that that idea has shifted a little bit. We have it's it you know people from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe um, also tend to passes white or passes Australian much more than people who are Asian Australian or African Australian, for instance. Um, So that's already shifting. But I think with the changes in the top five countries of birth and countries of origin, the ancestry data will also begin to change um, in a decade or more. Um, And that's that's certainly of significance um, to how we imagine Australia um, and how other countries Imagine Australia in
1: the future, now, Maria. I, I want to come to you in a moment uh, and ask you about uh, a point about the the, the, the Sukhmani just made before about the institutions. Our institutions being very British. But before I do that, just one last um, detailed question to you, Sukmani, about um, you, you made the point about the half of the population being having a parent or both parents who was born overseas, um, or they were born over the seas themselves. I think it's. Significantly more than half there, if you put all those things together, and a quarter of Australians speak a language other than English at home, which is, you know, that's that's amazing when when, when you actually think about it.
2: Yes, um, I think I was surprised by that as well because uh, the assumption often is that um, if people are here and there, um, people uh, Australia has a large. Section of the population that come as skilled migrants, which means that, you know, whether you're coming from India or China or or, uh, another country where English might not be the first language, you have to pass a test. Um, So the assumption is that you have a passable level of English. Um, But but the reality is that obviously people are going to make an effort to continue to hang on to their culture of origin, and so they should. Uh, including their mother tongue, so even when you have second-generation Australians, there's an upsurge in parents and grandparents trying to teach that la- that language to their children. Um, and so, you know, there is the practice of continuing with the tradition of being bilingual, even in households which have been in Australia for for a while. Um, you can see that reflected in the data. In addition to obviously first-generation migrants continuing to speak their um, their mother tongue. Um, in their households in addition to using english um, outside of the household
1: now maria I, I imagine you're actually one of those people who comes from a who grew up in a household where english wasn't uh, spoken in the household as well as as well as it being spoken in the household, so perhaps you're you're a good person to turn to both to talk about that uh, question I flagged a minute ago, uh, or that issue, and also the question I flagged a minute ago, um, the nature of our institutions, which are you know very very British in their in their um, design and history. Uh, wonder one, can they continue on? Do they need to change?
0: That's a really good question. Um- about institutions, I mean, I, I'm not convinced that the that the their their Britishness is necessarily an issue. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean that you know we couldn't think about ways to make them more like open and democratic. Democratic. Like, I don't think for ex- I guess another way of saying this is, I don't think the Westminster system is inconsistent with you know achieving good representational outcomes. And you know, we could just look at, for example. Uh, Proportional representation systems, um, which do a much better job of um, having a broader variety of candidates actually get elected, or just simply multi-member districts, they they do a better job of um, getting more voters up. And you can kind of sort of see this um, in terms of the Senate generally produces better minority representation um, at at the... at the federal level. But, you know, the other half of this story is, of course, um, political parties, you know, who are key gatekeepers um, in terms of, you know, all the selection processes that happen beforehand. And I don't just mean pre selection, you know, of course, you know, one has to pay one's dues in a political party. And, um, and migrants have actually, like, since the 60s really been um, quite, Uh, active within political parties and have enjoyed varying levels of um, success depending on the tier of government. Obviously, it's easier to get elected at local government and so, you know, migrant groups have performed better um, at this stage. And I guess it sort of goes to the question, right, is, you know, a debate, I guess, I suppose, which, which boils down to, Everything will be okay, we just have to wait for, you know, the system to slowly respond as, um, you know, migrants' children grow up and basically enter politics, which seems to be the, the typical pattern, mostly because migrants are busy kind of working out how to live here and, like, get on with stuff and uh, participating in politics is, you know, a bridge too far.
1: That's true, um, but, but I mean, as, as I've pointed out on this pod before um, – we do have, if you think about our leaders at the moment, just think about these names, Palaszczuk, Albanese, Malinowskis, Perrottet. These are not These are yeah. uh, anglo celtic names. So, and they're the leaders, you know, they're, they're the prime minister yeah. and the premiers of the biggest states and so forth.
0: So that's good evidence for the it'll be fine, just wait argument. Um
1: well, it's I thought, you know- it, it, it it is some evidence for that, true, but true. But it's also yeah. evidence that I mean, I was really thinking about it in terms of uh, your argument about um, you know, migrants have been active in our political parties and and have had some success. And uh, you know, when Perreté, um replaced um, Berediklian, for example, there have been quite a f- few more recently. It, it's it's there's an acceleration of this. I think is is what I'm saying. I'm not trying to yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to make an argument that it's all sorted don't get me wrong.
0: No no I I know you're not trying to, I know you're not trying to say that. Um you know so I think I think you know um it's quite likely that uh migrants and people who are non-white or white passing would face additional and and specific barriers um to entering politics just like you know women for example face mm. barriers into politics and then that would you know intersect with you know Typical kinds of things like class and and race, right, to do with the ability to accumulate resources in order to run for office or to be able to dedicate yourself to the specific kind of career that makes you attractive to political parties. And then just to simply like, you know, ideas that exist within parties about what makes a a good candidate or what what a successful candidate can possibly um, look like. And I think the last election we just had is a really interesting, um, I guess, shake up of uh, the idea of what a good or a good candidate can look like, because I think since ninety six, and I promise to stop talking after this, uh, since nineteen ninety six, which is when um, the proportion of migrants in the Australian Parliament kind of bumped up to twenty percent, it has effectively sat at that level and it's reflected the waves of migration. So, in '96, it was the Dutch and, you know, Germans and things like that and, you know, slowly we're sort of seeing more Southern Europeans who were the group that came in a little bit later and now we're starting to see Waves of migration that um, came after that. So, you know, I, I guess the picture is mixed. Like, could we do more? Absolutely. Um, you know, is the system responding? Actually, yeah. I'm, and I'm, I'm quite pleased.
1: Fan Young. The um, point Maria makes about the, the political system uh, being geared in a certain way, having certain biases or proclivities built into it, uh, is is right, of course. Uh, and we we just have to look at our parliament to to see that, but. Um migrant communities have indeed uh, been been active and they've been sort of active I wonder what what do you think about this proposition that they've been active in ways that have been useful to the the people who've held the, the levers of power so uh, within both the Labour Party and the Liberal Party it's been quite common to hear of uh, you know a Greek branch or or the Lebanese uh, community that's uh, that's sort of leveraged for the control of a certain number of votes in pre-selections and so forth uh, sometimes uh, members of these Communities have benefited from these uh, from these processes, but they've, they've been. It's very much been a sort of a case of kind of shoehorning those cultures into uh, into our political machinery, largely for the for the purposes of the furtherance of people within that machinery. Um, is that changing, or is, that, is Do you agree with that proposition, and, and can it change?
3: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Thanks, Mark. And before I respond to this question, I think I do want to respond to um, some points raised by Sukhmani and also Maria um, in terms of multiculturalism because this topic, multiculturalism, has been extensively discussed in um, Symposium, Migrant's Voices in Australia Politics, held by Deakin um, early this month. So multiculturalism is a national policy keeps evolving, and if we look at multicultural policies across Australian states, for example, Victoria, New South Wales, Western Australia, etc., you can see that different states, they have different frameworks or they have different kinds of framings about multiculturalism, and their framings are of multiculturalism or the involvement of multiculturalism is contingent on how Australia as a nation-state wants to engage with these migrant communities. So multiculturalism ideally should be an inclusive ideological discourse promoting multicultural uh, multicultural equity instead of consolidating the hegemonic culture or Australian exceptionalism. But on the other hand, we do see the idea of, um, for example, mainstream Australia and Australian uh, national unity, national interest, promoted by some politicians in Australia so it seems like diversity or multiculturalism at the working level is lacking and this comes back to your previous question in terms of the diverse representation of Australian politicians in the parliament so um it's it's really nice or it's really you know um it's really nice to see that we now have more and more politicians coming from ethnic migrant communities and also indigenous backgrounds. Um, but also the thing is that um, from my research, um, we me and Dr. Robert Fordyce at Murdoch University and Dr. Dr. Luke Hubsbergen at Deakin University, we look into um, Australian federal election among Chinese um, migrants and what kind of information and um, public opinions have been mobilized among um, the Chinese diaspora on WeChat. So, we have identified that the expectation from China's migrant communities about, chi- about the politicians coming from migrant backgrounds it is no longer that they need more politicians of Chinese cultural heritage to represent their community. But to what extent these politicians would be able to voice out on behalf of the communities? So one example that I could um, show the audience is that during the pre-election, Chinese migrants concerned whether candidates of China's cultural heritage can represent the voices of China's communities. And this has been manifested in China's migrants' disappointment towards Gladys Lau for not representing the community's voices or standing up against racism.
1: Can I just uh, stop you there for a moment? Because that's a really sure. interesting point. Gladys Lau was the uh, candidate, uh, the member for Chisholm. Correct? Yes. yes, and yes. Uh, in, uh, in a, a seat uh, often uh, generally thought to be a labor seat, but one that she wrested off labor in a by election um, a couple of cycles ago, uh, and she was defeated at this most recent election and and you're saying there that the chinese uh, very strong Chinese population in that electorate, which uh, her candidacy was uh, thought to be, you know, this great masterstroke uh, uh, in getting her, and certainly it worked in the sense that she she took that seat from the Labor Party in that by election that had been held by the former Speaker, um, and. Uh, so there was there was a lot of uh, support for it for her, but uh, you're saying the Chinese community there became disillusioned because as the Liberal government ramped up its anti-China rhetoric, we had Dutton talking about the drums of war and a whole lot of other sort of um, state, lots of statements being made by various uh, uh, people, including the Prime Minister, um, that the Chinese community felt that it was that Gladys Liu was not um, not. Standing up for the Chinese community, yep. but was siding with the Liberal Party, with the Liberal government against her own people. Is that is that what you are saying?
3: Yes, indeed. Um, so, so actually, I can explain it better by raising one example.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so within the Liberal Party, there are diverted attitudes towards whether to use WeChat and how to use WeChat as a platform to mobilize their political campaign. And this kind of discussion has been, what has been repetitively hyped, um, especially in um, January 2022. Um, when the news of Scott Morrison's missing WeChat account broke, Scott Morrison, James Patterson, and Gladys Liu, they publicly expressed to Australian media that we're going to boycott WeChat. We're not going to use WeChat anymore. So in February 2022, at Chinese media online briefing, both Alex Hawke and Scott Morrison expressed their willingness to communicate with Chinese migrants on WeChat, but there was no substantial actions observed in our research. On the other end, within the Liberal Party, we have seen, um, for example, Goddess Lau. She kind of adopted a differentiated approach towards WeChat, and this her, uh, mirrored her position in the parliament and the power dynamic in Austrian politics. So Gladys Low has been facing a dilemma, which is the marginalized position as an Asian female in Austrian parliament, who didn't have too much power at that time. And she's losing trust from Chinese migrants. And because of her silence towards racism, during the pandemic and not being able to voice for the Chinese diaspora. And she tends to position herself as a close ally, showing strong solidarity to Scott Morrison. And during the pre-election, she actually mobilized her supporters or followers on WeChat. And she wanted her followers on WeChat to Um, relocate their communication or conversation or political campaign away from WeChat to WhatsApp. And immediately there was a backlash from China's migrant community because they thought we have been using WeChat for a very long time and why we should use WhatsApp because of you. So gradually she started losing trust from the community.
1: That's really interesting, isn't it, Maria? That's fascinating. Yeah. That is
0: absolutely fascinating. And, um, and, um, I think what you're, you, you, highlight a lot of really important points, fan, there, right? Like the, the first one being that, um, you know, the, the practice of multiculturalism in Australia is generally pretty thin, right? It's sort of like food and festivals and dancing, um, which are all non-threatening to the core business. Of um, you know how the Australian state runs and what norms sort of follow, which kind of circle back to our original question, right? About whether or not Westminster can do a can do a good job or the British origins of our um, sort of political um, system. But I think what you're you're saying there, Fan, about uh, the community sort of l- loss of trust in in Gladys um, Lou because essentially she failed to um, stand up for them. You know, that's like a, a story that has been echoed across um, the the electorate, right, um, in terms of a sort of fundamental failure to undertake core representative functions, particularly when that community was under so much pressure during the first waves of um, the pandemic because of all the sort of racist attacks that were happening um, on Chinese people. Do you know if People sort of confronted her with that on um, the the platform, or, or was it sort of a sort of more low level grievance?
3: Well, um, I think there is a variety. Um, there is a variety kind of engagement of, of Australian politicians in terms of how they, you know, how they communicate with um, Chinese migrants on WeChat and. Glass now was quite active on WeChat with regard to her personal um, WeChat account because I added her personal account because um, I wanted to see how she mobilised her own political campaign since 2019. So I have been working on monitoring Australian federal elections since 2019. And she was quite active in terms of her engagement with Chinese migrant communities, but this kind of engagement was majorly about she making, was making posts about how she talked to those um, those vendors or business owners in Box Hill, which is a um, which is a suburb with high density of Asian of residents coming from East Asian backgrounds. And this kind of communication is pretty much was pretty much one way. So instead of using um, her personal WeChat post to actually have two way effective communication with the uh, with her followers or contacts, um, from what I could tell, she basically just used that used her WeChat personal account as a kind of mass media channel to. Broadcast what she has done to the community without having too much engagement or communication with the community.
1: It's really interesting, actually, because that's sort of like a microcosm of what we've been talking about, what was implicit in my question, and that is that notion that. uh, sort of multicultural or cultural minority uh, communities that get a representative uh, in in our political system are essentially conforming to our political system. And here we had Gladys Liu actually, um, you know, in, in the uh, judgment of her constituents, essentially joining the political class and behaving as a member of that dominant political class, rather than engaging and representing her own community from whence she came and which was largely the reason why she was pre-selected in the first place. And uh, um, that sort of tells a story about the resilience of our political system to sort of try and hold its form against these new social realities that we have in this multicultural country. And of course, the other big thing that Gladys Liu did wrong was side with Scott Morrison. And we saw what happened to uh, Josh Frydenberg and a number of others who who decided to stand with Scott Morrison. Uh, They went over a cliff, as did she. Uh, Let's take a quick break there and come back and continue this excellent discussion.
2: or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
1: Welcome back. We were discussing about the sort of interplay between these multicultural changes in Australia and and politics. Um, what did we learn, do you think? Um, perhaps I'll come to you, Sukhmani, on this. What did we learn through the pandemic about Australian identity and Australian citizenship? Because there was some, you know, we, we all saw it. There were some really easy thing or big things, but they were done easily um, in the pandemic, which were quite dramatic and yet caused no sort of political disquiet here. We we essentially stopped immigration straight away. We closed our borders. We even uh, told Australian citizens uh, who were abroad, you can't come home, and there was almost no backlash about it. Uh, we had the Prime Minister and um, the Foreign Minister... You know, just simply saying we want to, we want to have an international inquiry into the, into the origins of the virus in Wuhan, you know, without any sort of consultation or any deftness in, in the approach. All of these things to me spoke to a sort of a, um, a background level of um, of Australian identity, of its sense of itself, which wasn't actually as far removed from the Australia of the White Australia policy lead, leading up to the nineteen seventies as we might think we have come.
2: Um, th- thank you, uh, Mark. That's uh, that's a great question. But before I get to COVID and um, how we behaved as as a nation and the kinds of trust we had in government, I just want to respond to a couple of points that Fan raised. Um, I think those are really fascinating insights about how the Chinese community felt um, in the way that they were represented by Gladys Liu and what happened in the last election. Um, I think what what we also need to think about is kind of comparing ourselves with similar style uh, Western democracies. If you look at research that has happened in countries like the UK or, or Canada, which have similarly large multicultural populations, what we see is that um, politicians from ethnic minority backgrounds, especially those who are non-white and successful, are often successful because they're able to appeal to both sides. They're able to represent and harness the interests um, and appeal of their ethnic community. Um, And they're also kind of able to appeal to what you might call the mainstream. And I think the reason that Gladys Liu um uh, i guess kind of faltered there were there were a number of reasons it was well because she uh went for one over the other um mm. in terms of kind of supporting scott morrison and that was also uh quite disastrous in this case because uh, because of the way scott morrison and the the coalition government treated chinese australians during the covid outbreak so there is no such thing as a voting block when you think about ethnic groups, that's what research says, unless mm-hmm. a particular community is slighted uh, by a party or a government yes. that's in power. Yes. Um, and that's what we saw play out in the case of the Chinese-Australian community. So I had a number of mainstream media outlets for the first time um, come to me and many other researchers to ask how the Indian-Australian community was going to vote. And many of us said, Look, there isn't going to be one decisive kind of Indian Australian vote, um, because they haven't been affected in the same way that the Chinese Australians have been affected uh, by the way that the government has been kind of, you know, scapegoating them.
1: There was that moment, Sukmani, where the government, for a time, had a um, was threatening to jail Indian Australians trying right. to come yeah, home. Yeah. That would that wouldn't have been a particularly uh, well received uh, moment.
2: I mean, if there was a federal election a week after that happened, I would say it would have had an impact. But I think there there was some degree of amnesia and the Scott Morrison uh, government tried very hard to appease a lot of first generation Indian Australians through the diplomatic relationships they try to cultivate with Modi. So they try to kind of sweep all of that under the carpet, which was only about a year ago. Um, but I think uh, we were also asked the question of whether that travel ban would impact the Indian-Australian vote, and and many surveys um, which, which were under, undertaken by uh, diasporic media at the time revealed that it would affect the vote for a section of the population, but not for everyone, which also speaks to, you know, migrant communities and how um, the, the levels of trust that they have in government. So there's a scandal and foundation so Wade that told us that, um, you know, people who are from a non-English speaking backgrounds have a very low levels of community or political engagement other than casting a vote in the election. Of course, you know, it doesn't examine phenomena like WeChat that FAN has, which I think is also very important to kind of tap into um, and not just your regular indicators of what constitutes uh, political or community action. But that aside, I think that the broader point I'm trying to make is that, they have lower levels of political action, community engagement, but they have higher levels of trust in, in, the, in the government, especially in the first five years of them being here. So what we saw with a number of these communities who were of migrant background and recently arrived is that they trusted the government to do the right thing and to shut the borders. And there wasn't a big backlash, uh, but we also saw that there was uh, Australian politics became hyper-local we we thought that would happen in the wake of the pandemic, but the election results certainly, um, you know, speak to that particular outcome. Um, and, and again, you know, you have varying, that has particular implications for migrant communities. Um, but again, it's important to separate the working class migrants from other kinds of migrants, which who might be in suburbs that have higher, uh, higher kind of median incomes um, and better schools, for example. Exactly. So parts of... Yes, go on, Maria.
0: Oh, sorry, because I think that's exactly what you you're saying right now relates to ex- the answer to why. There is not necessarily an ethnic voting block, and why it's actually a really insulting mm. question, right? Because it sort of um, assumes or essentializes migrant groups around one um, issue domain or one strand of, of their personhood, right? Um, and, and sort of ignores the fact that they have uh, different levels of education, different types of jobs, and obviously different kinds of interests, right? That are not just centered around either their migrant status or their specific ethnic status one of the reasons why historically we might sort of say that groups of voters voted in a block um wasn't necessarily because they were you know quote unquote from an ethnic background it's because they were working class yeah so they were were irish
1: or they were the first uh, wave of chinese immigrants or they were the irish immigrants or whatever and they were essentially working class and economically disadvantaged um, yes quite right
0: Yeah. So anyway, please, I I
2: interrupted your flow. I'm sorry. No, I think that's a very important point. And I think that class, uh, you know, alongside generation of migration, I think class is a really important factor when you are talking about migrant communities, because the census really brought that to light. I mean, think we were all talking about how particular areas of Western Sydney had harsher lockdowns, they had more essential workers, they suffered more. Uh, Same thing with suburbs in Melbourne, like, you know, whether we had the towers which were under lockdown in North Melbourne and Flemington um, uh, and the way that they were treated. But that's, um, that's also bringing up concerns like uh, who did they trust then? Who did they trust people from within their own communities, regardless of which political party they belonged to? Did they increase their level of engagement with local politics? Uh, what about issues of political literacy? Um, some of us also tried to engage with these communities through various forums in the lead up to the election to try and understand what their issues were and to have a bit of an intervention which wasn't along the side, along the lines of vote for this party. But if these are the issues that matter to you, this is what the major parties are doing about it. And I think if uh, community leaders, this is ethnic community leaders, as well as leaders from the mainstream political parties want to have meaningful engagement with ethnic communities, They need to be able to obviously understand that they're not going to watch just on the basis of their ethnicity, but also actually engage with them on that kind of, uh, you know, nuanced level instead of just visiting a community center or a temple or posting a curry selfie that needs to be more than kind of symbolic in nature.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's in, it strikes me as really interesting. I, I may have made this point before too, but um, we noticed when, when there was 10 candidates for the Tory leadership in Britain, that half of those 10 were women, and more than half of them were from non-Anglo-Celtic backgrounds. And that's for the Tory party. That's for the Cons- British Conservative Party. And um, it, it, it feels like I think Fan you made the point that um uh you know um, s- some uh, non-English speaking background politicians have chosen one side or the other to represent whereas the successful politicians it may not have been you, it may have been Sukmani but anyway the successful politicians are are, are capable of synthesizing a, a, a number of interests and 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 communicating with with both um I wonder whether that's what's what those uh, politicians in the UK are doing that politicians in Australia have uh, proven unable to do, and our political system has been more sort of resiliently, do, you know, it sort of uh, has resisted that uh, that that kind of behaviour.
3: So, I think one way um, for me, I, I have been um, trying to argue this point, um, and I think one way to kind of sum it up is to. Think about not just consider migrant communities as a separate um, separate part of Australian society, but actually, in fact, migrant communities they are dependent on Australian hegemonic society in order to be heard, in order to be represented. So, um, so I would like to raise three points, and I will start with two anecdotes. So, in At the Symposium Migrant's Voices in Austrian Politics, we have one panel of speakers who told us that she picked up Australian accent very quickly within three years during the pandemic because Australian accent for her is a shield for her. It's a protection for her so that she won't be discriminated in Australia. And she has has experienced um, quite bad, um, brutal um, racist attack. rebel attack um, in public and another anecdote was um, during the pandemic in light of the onset racial attack against Asian communities in Australia I was told by my mom um, that not to speak Mandarin in public only to speak English in public so that people wouldn't consider me as a Chinese so that people wouldn't attack me in public. So that points to the idea of racism during the pandemic. And the second point I'd like to point out is um during the pandemic, um, I have done a research on um, with Chinese migrant media professionals and I wanted to understand how the tension between Australia and China between Australia and China has been translated in their news articles. And I was told by a couple of Australian migrant media professionals that back in good times when um, China and Australia enjoy quite you know, um, friendly relationship, it's okay, it was okay for them to side with either side. They could report new stories on behalf of China and they could report new stories on behalf of Australian businesses. But during the pandemic, because of the increasingly intensified tension between China and Australia, they had to pick a side. And then they chose to side with Australia so that their business can survive. And siding with Australia or being part of the mainstream society, it's part of the survival technique of migrant communities. So if we look at the bigger picture, and if we take back to think about, take it back to think about the history of multiculturalism in Australia. Since the 1970s, Australia rebranded itself with the official proposal of multiculturalism to erase the country from the colonial past and serve the neoliberal economic end. And I think colonial past is very important to point out. So from from the 1970s to um, 1980s, the meaning of Australian multiculturalism has been transformed from cultural pluralism to cultural assimilation, with a latter one prioritising Australian identity and unity in a mindset of migrants to be part of Australian means to be part of the mainstream white society, which has been paradoxically designed to include non-white migrants through their daily engagement with public institutions, social norms, commercial entities, and aesthetics. So I think those are the three points that I'd like to respond to your question, Mark.
1: Okay, thank you very much for that. Now, we're getting very close to time, and I want to put a question that I'll I'll try and get all of you to uh, address yourselves to, um, uh, perhaps quite briefly because we are close to time. Uh, I'll start with you, Maria. I wonder, do you think there is a tension between progressive politics and 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 multiculturalism has always been a um, you know very strongly supported by the progressive, pro- uh, progressive side of politics do you think there, there there is inevitably a sort of a tension that arises between progressive politics pushing multiculturalism as an idea and being very inclusive and so forth um, and the way in which some of those communities that are encouraged to 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 be to be strengthened and, and proud about their identities and so forth the way they then can be deployed in the political process they might be uh deployed for their religious uh convictions in relation to uh, social socially progressive policy like same sex marriage and um uh, dying with dignity uh these sorts of issues that might come up abortion even um so I wonder, you know, is there a tension there? And this, I suppose, goes, Maria, to the, uh, a little bit to the question about, you know, it touches off on that question about our, our, Institutions, our political culture. If we have just a sort of a simple binary, then it's one thing, but uh, it's a much more complicated picture. I mean, perhaps that was why the prime minister was so keen to promote Catherine Deves in Warringah, because she was she was sort of dog whistling to these faith communities, uh, not just not just English speaking faith communities, but some others as well that uh, might be electorally important for him.
0: Okay, that's a that's a really complicated question, and so. So, because I don't, I know we need to wrap up. I, I will give a a relatively truncated answer, and I'll, I'll just sort of speak to one bit of that. I I don't think for the main political parties engage with migrant groups out of the goodness of their hearts. I think they engage with migrant groups for the same reason they engage with religious groups, um, or any or sporting groups because they are organised groups of people and it's efficient. To engage with groups on this level, mm. and I, I think that, on average, you know, depending on the interest of that individual MP, it will probably shape the shallowness or the the richness, and the meaningfulness of the of that interaction with that um, group. You know, like, um, and, um, and I I wouldn't say that. Migrant groups lack agency in this. I mean, there are there are parts of our major cities that you know um, migrant groups or, or religious groups effectively kind of control the sort of branches of those areas, and it's not necessarily that the. You know, that they're doing that out of the goodness of their hearts, either, or, you know, because they want to see their communities promoted. I mean, you know, in some cases that would be the case. And in some cases, these are just people who are interested in accruing power, like, you know, um, cynical politicians from non migrant groups are. So I, I think it's a complex kind of um, picture. Our institutions exist. They are sets of structures, rules, and norms, and individuals come to them and ass- effectively see what they can get out of them. And for some people, it's a lot easier for them to extract whatever they need out of this institution, or to p- push themselves forward um, into that institution. Or they can bring, um, you know, the the, the numbers um, that they can then trans from their community that which they can translate into power. Right? We see this. With with branch stacking of all kinds, um, from all kinds of faith groups or religious groups or sporting groups, or you know, you know what I mean. Like mm. it's not it's not just. Um, I mean, Malcolm Turnbull pretty much engaged in branch stacking. He kind of admits that. Like he he drew on his networks, um, um, within that community. But I guess it's sort of it's it is important for our political system to maintain its legitimacy to to be to be able to. Um, meaningfully reflect where society is at without too great a lag. Um, and but, but, just, just quickly, a Maria, but
1: just quickly Maria, but just quickly, is the is secular progressivism as sort of a tradition on the Australian left harder when you have large faith communities who are more conservative on these social questions?
0: Well, it can be, but I think it really depends on what the issues of the day are. I mean, like, you know, I know Scott Morrison um and Co sort of thought that they were hitting on a real winner with, the, with the, the Catherine Deves and the trans issues. But, I mean, I think the Sydney Morning Herald went and went and actually spoke with the leaders of those faith communities. So, you know, arguably people who are most likely to be paying attention to what is kind of going on at, at a high level of politics because they occupy a representative function for their communities and they had not even heard of the issue, <laughs> let alone Catherine Deves. So, I think that's my point. Parties make these assumptions about migrant groups as being X or Y, Mm. failing to understand that they're they're actually made up of kind of, you know, broad communities. And, yeah, like, sure, issues like trans rights might be deeply disturbing to certain migrant groups or certain religious groups because they're simply unfamiliar or or whatever, right? But, like, kind of to go back to the point we said before, like, it's a hierarchy of issues and, you know, I would be prepared to bet that migrant groups face all the same cost of living pressures that the average Anglo ancestry Australian does, and then a few extra complicated ones because of their responsibilities that they might have. You know, so, so, so parties sort of always talk about mm. being able to recruit, right, these groups that they're readily available, but they, they treat them like one dimensional people. And so, it's you know it's not surprising then that they're actually more likely to be mo- motivated or mobilised because they've been systematically insulted, yeah. or just on the sort of classic material
2: grounds or post-material grounds that most voters are mobilised on.
1: Yeah, Sukmani.
2: Um, Yeah, I think to your point, Maria, of what mobilizes migrant voters, that's, that's really important to understand that it is what mobilizes the rest of the population in addition to what else might be affecting them because of their ethnicity amongst the various other dimensions of who they are as individuals and collectivities. To give you a very quick example, I was constantly trying to bring up infrastructure issues in the outer suburban areas of Melbourne and Sydney where most new migrants live. You know, to the attention of the media as issues that they should highlight. In addition to you know, funding for temples and community centres, but it rarely made it to the to the top of their list. And secondly, I think it is assumed with the success of the teal independence and the green wave that climate change is an issue which is concerning you know the wealthier electorates. But if you look at you know the purchase of electric vehicles or the demand for electric vehicles, it's much higher in parts of Western Sydney than it is in certain parts of the northern uh, beaches or, or the eastern suburbs. So um, if you if you really started to drill down into, you know, what uh, affects migrant voters, I think the picture or the perceptions that political parties have and then the media class then picks up is different from what is taking place on the ground. Um, so I would also bet that, you know, issues of faith or social conservatism are not as bigger part of the picture as they're made out to be.
1: Yeah, really interesting. And finally to you, Fan.
3: Um, yeah, sure, thanks. Um, so I think the final mark, mark that I'd like to make is that first, like, different organisations including universities, academic researchers, um Um, political think tanks and also Australian media, we engage with migrant voices in Australian politics quite differently. But one thing that at Kernel is that to what extent Australian lens is represented in the research. And diversity has been instrumentally used by Australian politicians and also public institutions as something representative and the voices of migrants are not well accepted. And finally, I think nuances and complexities within the catch-all phrase, Chinese migrants or migrants' ethnic communities, should be teased out even more. And these complexities include one's class, gender, and ethnicity, so on and so forth.
1: Thank you very much to all of you. It's been a really terrific and insightful conversation. I've I've learned a lot and uh, hopefully people listening will have uh, very much enjoyed your contributions. Um uh, great to be sort of stepping back from from uh, from I guess the daily events of politics and talking about some of these really important underlying factors in our in our Community and our, our political system. So, uh, thank you very much to Sukmani Kurana, Fan Yang, and of course to Dr. Maria Teflaga, who is with me each week. That's Democracy Sausage again for this week, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. Bye for now.
0: Bye.